Last time we looked at chapter 6 very briefly and looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to go through now and do a little more deep search and then hopefully make it through the rest of chapter 6. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. He went out conquering and to conquer. Now We are in the throne room and we are seeing things. First thing we see is the opening of a seal. And you might recall that there was a scroll and it was obviously incredibly important that this scroll be opened and no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And John cried when when this event happened and then somebody came and said, it's okay, there's one who's worthy. And it's Jesus, the Lamb. And so the Lamb is opening the scroll. And what happens is he'll open the scroll, he'll break a seal, open the scroll, and then come to another seal and break that seal and open the scroll. And each time, as opposed to someone reading the scroll, the scroll comes to life, the story comes to life. And so we see what happens in each of these seals. And what we're going to see the rest of this book, we're going to see seven seals each time a story comes to life. The seventh seal is going to produce seven trumpets, Each one of the trumpets is going to be like an event, like you blow a trumpet and something important happens. The last three trumpets are the three woes, so it gets escalatingly more severe on the earth each time one of these things happens. And then the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls of wrath poured out on the earth. And then the end comes, Jesus returns. So seven seals, seven seals, seven trumpets. Seventh trumpet is seven bold judgments. That's going to be kind of the structure of the rest of the book. When Jesus returns, then we'll get a little peep into the new heaven and the new earth. We are in this section of Revelation, chapter 4 on. We are in the 70th week of Daniel. It's a seven-year period. And we've gone through that, that in Daniel chapter 9, it tells us that the the 70th week begins with a treaty between the Antichrist and, and Israel. And in the middle of that seven years, there's going to be an abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel, Jesus said. And that's, that's going to then trigger the Great Tribulation. And this is going to be, I believe, things that are happening in the Great Tribulation. So we see here the seal broken, and one of the four living creatures speaks. Now this is very interesting. There's four living creatures. These are not people, and they're not angels. They're creatures, and they're speaking. Now that's kind of fun, isn't it? I think C.S. Lewis may have picked up on this in his Narnia Chronicles. Wouldn't you like to live in a place where the animals talk? I don't know if the animals we knew here will be there or if it'll be a different group of animals. Could be either, could be both. But it appears as though the animals are going to be speaking not just with body language and other forms of communication, which I don't know about you, we have dogs that speak very clearly. You know exactly what they want. Now their vocabulary is very limited. Ball, food outside to go potty you know there's just certain things that they tell you but they're very clear about it well here these are creatures actually speaking words why you have the creatures in charge of this is an interesting thing as well perhaps the creatures in heaven and the creatures in the new earth are going to have uh, very important functions like this it's quite fascinating but the creature says come and see now they're in the throne room So the interesting question is, 
where does John go and where does he look? That's kind of an interesting thing. If we skip down just a little bit, we can see in 6.9, when he opens the fifth seal, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. So when we get to that point, we'll see that he's actually seeing something happening in the throne room. So these first four seals, apparently he's going and looking at something that's happening either in a different part of the throne room or more likely outside. So what is it? A big screen? A window? A porch that you're looking out on to see what happens? We don't know, but we do know each time he goes back to the throne room again. So it's happening from the throne room and he's seeing some kind of a vision that's happening uh, either projected within or, or outside the throne room. So this living creature says, come and see. And he looks, and what he sees is a white horse. And we've already emphasized that what's happening in here is these apocalyptic events are being authorized in the throne room. And one of the overriding points of Revelation is when you see these horrible things happening on earth, they are being authorized. It's not that suddenly God has lost control. It is that God's in His throne room, on His throne, authorizing things to be happening on the earth. And again, the point of Revelation is to read, understand, and do. And what we're supposed to understand is things are going to get really bad, but they're authorized. And what God wants us to do is be faithful witnesses and not fear death. That's pretty much the gist of it. Very simple, very clear. Now, what's not so simple is these events. But the point is not to understand the events. The the point is to understand there's going to be a lot of bad stuff happen. And when it does, God's still on his throne. So then what happens is the crown is given to the guy sitting on the white horse, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. Anybody know what the Greek word is? that's translated conquering and conquer. Nike, Nike yeah, Nike, Nikeo. So let's look back at Revelation 3.20 because now that you see that is authorized to this person on the white horse to go out and conquer, it's exactly the same word as in 3.21. Let's look at 3.20. This is the Laodicean church, the seventh church that we saw a letter written to. Greek colony, so these are Greek people with Greek language. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now remember, these Laodiceans are people who thought they needed nothing. They were very rich people. They had the ability not to depend on others. They could depend on themselves. And Jesus tells them in this letter... You actually are naked, miserable, and wretched. And you don't see. Your problem is you don't see yourself as you really are. So what you need to do to be actually rich is buy gold from me. And the way you buy gold from me is listen to my voice. And so this is, this is the, the answer. Listen to my voice. And then he says to him who overcomes. The same word. Nikeo. To him who conquers. And how do we conquer on earth? Listen to God's voice. See, go back to the very first part of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads, hears, understands, 
and then does. So the, the whole point here is, listen to my voice, let me interact with you. And if we do that, what we're going to do is live a life that's not of the world. It's in the world, but it's not of the world. And we're going to live a life apart from the world. And when we do that, we are conquering. Chapter 6 is a different kind of conquering, of course. We're not conquering sin and the world and so forth. This conqueror is conquering physically with armed violence. And we can see that in the second seal. So now the lamb breaks the second seal and run, rolls, and another story comes to life. I hope all the books in heaven or in the new earth are going to be this way. Where you go check out a book and you unroll it and boom, it comes to life. I, I kind of think that's what the way it is going to be. I'd like to learn about, I'd like to, like to learn about the Crusades. Unroll it, boom, there they are. You're there, you're in it. I, I sort of expect that. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying. So here we got another creature that's talking. It's not just one. And each one of these creatures apparently is associated with triggering this uh, apocalyptic horse. So the first guy's conquering in the conquer. He says, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out and was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth that the people should kill one another. It was given to him a great sword. So when there's a conquering force that's authorized, a crown was given to him, of course there's going to need to be war. And this war is authorized. Notice there, it was granted to the one to set on place. By who? Where are we? We're in the throne room. It's granted by God for there to be violence on the earth. Now it's interesting because the very first time God poured out his wrath on the earth in a major way, it was for a specific reason. Look at Genesis 6.11 real quick. Genesis 6.11 says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That's the reason why the flood came, is because the earth filled with violence. God did not make an earth to be full of violence. And it's interesting to think about, but a From all appearances, what took place is an earth that was very lush and productive and easy to live in became an earth that was very harsh by comparison and difficult to live in. And God said, if you're going to spend all your time fighting with each other, I'm going to take your time away from you. And you're going to spend all your time trying to stay alive. And now you're going to spend your time farming and working. Otherwise, you just kill each other. And and the first thing, of course, that happens when they repopulate the earth is they start gathering to a city again so that they can fight some more. And he scatters them out through all the earth. And, of course, we still fought, but just in little skirmishes. And we couldn't couldn't all fight at once. Well, it was granted to him to take peace from the earth that people should kill one another, which is part of the conquering and to conquer. And then he opened the third seal. And the third living creature says, come and see. So again, he go, I don't know if he's going back to the same place every time to look or to a different place to look, but there's something happening that he's seeing beyond just what's in the throne room. 
And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. A denarius is a day's wage. And so what we're seeing here is basically all work is, is just sufficient to barely get enough to eat. Uh, a quart of wheat is roughly one day of calories for one person. So there's great scarcity that comes to the earth. And it's interesting, this uh, voice in the midst of the four living creatures, it doesn't tell us whose voice this is, but apparently these living creatures are an orchestrated and integrated part of God's plan. Perhaps this is their whole purpose that they've been waiting to accomplish. But it's going to be very interesting to see what the workforce looks like in heaven. It may look a lot like Star Wars. The fourth seal now opens. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So again, he's going to look. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades, followed with him. And the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death, and by the beasts of the earth. So here you've got conquering and war and famine. And one other thing that's added there is beasts. And this pale horse rider is death. Now this is interesting because death, of course, is an event. All men are appointed to die. And Hades is a place. So one of the questions that I thought about was, how can a place ride a horse? Well, in the Greek world, the personification of events was a common way of doing things. And in fact, this term death is a translation of thanatos and Hades is a translation of Hades. It's not translated. It's just Hades. And thanatos and Hades were both uh, persons in the panoply of Greek gods and Greek mythology. They were personifications of events. Thanatos was not very commonly depicted. He wasn't one of the main characters in the Greek mythology. Hades, of course, is. Hades was both a place and a person. And there was personification of the place. And the place was the, the place where all the dead went. Now, it's interesting, this word Hades that follows along with death, they're a duo because death is the event and then Hades is the place. But Hades, it's interesting that in the King James Bible, Hades is translated. So you don't see the word Hades if you look at the King James Bible. But in the New King James, they figured out that, hey, you know, we, we shouldn't decide for people. We should just put Hades in there, at least here. Hades is a very interesting term to me. If we look at Acts 2.27, you'll see the word Hades. So Acts 2.27 is uh, Peter giving his defense of the gospel. And he's talking about Jesus being resurrected, the resurrected Messiah. And he says in verse 25, For David says concerning him, and then he quotes a psalm. And he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So he's saying, look, David predicted 
that the Messiah would be resurrected. Because he says, you're going to go to Hades but not stay there. Well, the interesting part of this is, if you go to the Old Testament and look at this psalm, the Hebrew word that is translated Hades in this verse is the Hebrew words Sheol. And if you look at Sheol in the Old Testament, it's translated variously pit, death. It's basically the place of the dead, and it's pretty well universally the place of the dead. It's like Sheol that's used 65 times in the Old Testament, and then the King James Version translates grave 31 times, hell 31 times, and pit 3 times. But Sheol actually just means where you go when you die, whether it's your body going in the grave or whether it's the ultimate place that you go. The first use is in Genesis 37:35, and it says, All his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, But he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down to the grave, Sheol, to my son in mourning. I think this is is Jacob mourning Joseph. Sheol, the place of the dead, and Hades are the same place. Now, the fascinating thing to me about that is, Hades was an already developed concept in Greek mythology. And so the gospel writers just said, that's an accurate enough picture. Well, we'll just substitute it in for our view of Sheol. Because, you know, mythology is, always comes from somewhere. It has truth embedded in it. And, if, and apparently, Hades was close enough. And in fact, if you look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it says that Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man was in Hades. And there's this gulf between them. But they can see each other. So they're in the same place with a division. And that's exactly what the Greek idea Hades was. You cross the river Styx and then you go into either the good compartment. Elysium is kind of the good place, although that word never shows up in the Bible. And then I said, what's the bad place called? Maybe I'll think of it later. That word uh, is actually in the scripture a couple of times. But anyway, it, it appears that the New Testament talks about the bad place as Hades and the whole place as Hades. And if we go look at the instances of the use of Hades... You look at Matthew eleven twenty three, and it says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. So Hades is used as the lowest place as opposed to heaven, which is the highest place. So that's one use of Hades. Matthew sixteen eighteen, it says, And I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So here, Hades is actually a fortress with a gate. And it's trying to keep people out and keep people in. And the picture here is the church will get a battering ram and go and bust down the gates and bust into Hades. So that's our job. Our job is to assault death and defeat it with life. That's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? And what we're going to see is at the end of Revelation, Hades is going to actually be thrown into the lake of fire. It's going to be destroyed. The fortress is going to be torn down. I've already talked about Luke 16, the place, the location of the rich man, and he's in torment. And he looks over and sees Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 is interesting. It says, O death, where's your sting? O Hades, where's your victory? So again, in 1 Corinthians, Hades and death are as a duo. 
They're partners. If we look at Revelation 1.18, it says, I am he who lives. This is Jesus speaking and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So Jesus, again, we have just a fortress and it has a door and it's locked. And Jesus says, I have the key. I can go open this up. I can undo death, which of course he already had done at one point. He's resurrected. And the great promise to us is of resurrected. We will be saved from being trapped in a body that doesn't want to do the same thing as our spirit wants to do. Revelation 6, 8, here we see as an actor along with death. And then Revelation 20.13 is where Hades is abolished. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So here we are, death and Hades are a pair again. The dead are in Hades, and they deliver up the dead. And each one's judged according to his work. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we see death and Hades, they're going out on a horse, and they're going to reap a fourth of the earth, But they're eventually headed to the lake of fire. That is not going to be a permanent place. So when we talk of hell, we usually get these things all muddled together. But the Bible is actually pretty precise about this. What we call hell is a compilation of a lot of different things that are more properly broken out. And one is Sheol or Hades, and that's a temporary dwelling place for people. Now, who's there now? And how that works, I I don't know. I I can't tell you how that happens. It's very clear that if believers are there, Jesus is there with them. It's very clear if unbelievers are there, it's not a pleasant place to be. But it is clear that at the end of the age, there's still people in there, and it's given up, but they're not going to stay there. The permanent dwelling place for unbelievers is the lake of fire, not Hades. They're two, they're two separate things. But Hades and death are key actors during this great tribulation. And you see, a fourth of the earth, that would be two billion people in today's world. Two billion people dying. That's a lot of people dying. You know, if you think about how many people died in the great world wars and so forth, it's nothing approaching a fourth of the earth. Yes? Well, purgatory is a concept. The word purgatory comes from the Middle Ages. The Reformation actually took place because of purgatory. The word purgatory doesn't show up in the Bible. It's a word purging. The, the idea of purging does show up in the Bible. And that is the idea that your sins are purged with fire. So when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ and you have fire and you're cleansed with fire, that, that is the same idea. The early church very much focused on that event that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and there's going to be fire. And we're going to see fire here in a minute uh, on the altar. This fire is something that you can either take now in this life and be cleansed and then not have fire at the judgment seat or have fire at the judgment seat. And if you embrace the fire of cleansing in this life, which comes through circumstances and you live in dependence, then what you get is an amazing, incredible reward because you are a conqueror. You overcame sin in this life, and there's a reward. And if you don't, you lose those rewards. The early church, the early church was so driven by this that they had a problem. 
And the problem was guys wanting to get thrown to the lines in the Colosseum. It's like, you know, take me, take me. I want to be arrested and thrown to the lines. They had to tell people, no, 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 no. If that happens to you, that's okay, but don't volunteer. Your, your job is to live as a faithful witness, but not try to get killed. If you get killed, that's fine. Okay? That, that's the way the early church was. And that's why Rome fell. Because they had no power over this huge block of people. That's why they started a second capital. Because oh, we can't control these people anymore. They like dying. <laughs> And Revelation, of course, is telling us that's the attitude we're supposed to have. Oh, you want to criticize me? Awesome. You, you, want, to run me, you want to run me through the streets because of my faith? I couldn't be better. Unfortunately, though, here's what happened. That massive motivation was now put into the hands of an intermediary. And the church became an institution instead of an org- organism. Instead of a body... It became a building. And the building had a boss. And they realized, man, these people are uber motivated by this. So we can make some real money off of this. So they started telling people, you know, you can die for your faith and all that sort of thing, but there's another way. You can just pay us some money and we'll make that happen because, you know, we're the intermediaries. So pay us for your sins. And then, and we'll take care of it here. See, money substitutes. And the reason why the Reformation took place is because they started saying, we'll give you a lifetime subscription. You know, a coupon book that's in this, they called it, uh, what did they call it? Anybody remember what that term was? Indulgence. Uh, there was a certain, it was, it was a certain kind of indulgence that took care of everything once and for all. And they were, they were selling these things to raise money to build uh, St. Peter's Cathedral, as I recall. I, d- I don't recall exactly. But anyway, they sold these dull indulgences. And that was what created the tipping point for Luther. He said, you know, look, you, you're, you're actually causing poor people to impoverish their families. If you'll read the 95 Thesis, so you can kind of reverse engineer this. You're causing poor people to impoverish their families to buy their relatives. Because you could it wasn't just that you could buy it for yourself, you could buy it for all your relatives. And they would tell people, you know, you you got to save all your relatives. you got to save your family tree. Give us your money. And it became amazingly corrupt. Of course, the judgment seat of Christ is going to have nothing to do with buying anything, as the letter to the Laodiceans made very, very clear. Because he says, if you want gold, buy it from me. And the way you do it is by listening to me. Okay? But we're not, we're not going to see anything about the judgment seat at this point in time. We're just seeing judgment on the earth. Alright? Then he gets to the fifth seal. The fifth seal is really fascinating. Because now he doesn't, he doesn't say, come and see. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So we break the fifth seal, and now we're looking at an altar. Now, 
there's one question that pops up here. Why is there an altar in the throne room in heaven? Boy, when you hear the word altar, what do you usually think of happening? A sacrifice, right? So are we killing things on this altar? Does there need to be a sacrifice in heaven? No, there doesn't. But we still have an altar. Well, an altar's role in the Bible is for sin to meet God and to be cleansed. An altar is a place where you go and you ask for something. There's a petition and God engages with the petition. It's a place where you meet God. So here, the souls of, or the lives, this is pasuke. You can translate pasuke, soul or life. Interchangeable in my experience. This altar has souls under it. So there's all these people. Millions of people fall under this altar. So that's another interesting thing. Is this altar gigantic? Are these people tiny? <laughs> or, or maybe this is like C.S. Lewis's deal where... It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, where space is different than what we're used to. And it doesn't sound like a wonderful place to go and sit under the altar for a really long time. Why are these people interested in sitting under the altar? Well, they want justice. And look what they're asking. How long are you going to wait? Which tells you what about time in heaven? There's still time. The idea of time shall be no more... Sort of, you know, because that means there's no clock ticking until you die. So in that sense, time is no more. But you still are aware of time. We're going to get to a point in the, in the pretty near future where he's going to say there was a pause in heaven for 30 minutes. So John is even aware of time. So they're aware of time. And, they're, and what they want is justice. They want vengeance on the people who killed them. Matt, did you want to say something? Well, I was going to say that I think that that altar corresponds with the altar of incense that Moses built after the pattern he saw in the throne room, which is a representation of the prayers of the saints, it says. This incense going up, and so I see it ironic that the saints are under this altar, and it's almost their communication method with the man on the throne. Yeah, and, and in fact, we have multiple instances of altar in the Revelation here. Let's just look at them real quick. Revelation 8.3, it says, Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and it was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. So we see here prayers. So these our prayers and the prayers of all of our brethren who have gone before us apparently are being collected, concentrated, put in a bowl, and at the appropriate time they're going to be poured out. And in fact, some of these bold judgments are going to come directly from us asking for justice. Have you ever asked for justice from God? God, please make this right. I hope you are, because you want to be in this bowl. You want, you want this to be a part of this. And it's, it's going to happen. Revelation 8, 5 is uh, just after 8, 3, of course. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. So this altar has fire on it. And in fact, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah goes to the throne room, he says, man, I'm a man of unclean lips. And an angel comes and takes a coal from the altar and scorches his lips to cleanse them, cauterizes his lips. So there's a fire here to cauterize sin. And When he throws the prayers in, he throws the judgment on sin, the cauterization on sin onto the earth as well. Revelation 9, 13. 
This is the sixth trumpet, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, release the four angels. So this is really cool because this is Beauty and the Beast. Be our guest, be our guest, put us to the test. The furniture talks. The altar is speaking. Isn't that awesome? Not only do the animals talk, the furniture talks. Now, I let my imagination run wild with this one. I'm really looking forward to that. We'll see, see where all that goes. Maybe this is the only one, maybe not. But the altar actually has a speaking part. It's, it's engaged in this. Apparently, everything in the throne room has a real purpose, and there's nothing static in there that's just sitting there being used. The altar's alive. And in Revelation 14, 18... Another angel came out from the altar. So the altar apparently is an office tower in addition to being a piece of furniture. And finally, Revelation 16, 7. I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, you are true and righteous are your judgments. So apparently this altar is a pretty central place in the throne room and justice is happening at the altar. Now, I don't know about you, but I long for justice to be done. I long for there to be a time where there's no more injustice. And we still see this to a major degree in the, in, in the culture today. People want justice. I've already spoken to this once, but when Osama bin Laden was killed, there was a national celebration because somebody died. And, you know, you don't even know for sure what his life was been and whether... You just knew he had killed a bunch of our people and was trying to kill more. And, and that ended and people were happy about it. We want justice and justice is going to be done. Jesus says, vengeance is mine. I shall repay. And that's what he's going to do. Okay, then we see that it, they're given a white robe and tell them, you know, just hang on because... Your number has to be fulfilled. So it is, in fact, God's intent that many of us will die. Now, this idea of being a faithful martyr and not fearing death is, in fact, what being an overcomer or a conqueror is. Not fearing death. Not fearing rejection. Now, death is just a separation. When your battery dies, the chemical flow is disconnected from the terminals. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a separation. So lots of things can die. A relationship can die. A dream can die. And in this case, death is something we're not to fear. And we can die to the world. And when we die to the world, the world hates us. And the world will pay, pay us back. We will be rejected from the world. That's a very good thing. Don't fear rejection from the world. Don't fear being pushed back from the world. And the world may try to kill us at some point. Don't fear dying for your faith. There are Christians dying for their faith in the world today simply because they believe and will not recant. And that's been the case all the way through. Well, it's going to be very widespread during the Great Tribulation. Let's look at Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write... 
because remember, John is writing all this down. This is a book, a letter he's to write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So there's actually a special blessing to dying for your faith during the Great Tribulation. A special blessing. And in fact, we see this in Scripture that Stephen got an actual hint of this and it was conveyed to us. And he stands up as he's being martyred and says, I see Jesus standing. Because Jesus, of course, is not in the habit of standing when we see the throne room scene. What is he in the habit of doing? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. In the ancient throne rooms, the sovereign doesn't stand. Everybody else stands or goes prostrate on their face. No one sits in the presence of a sovereign. Only the sovereign sits. And here's Jesus standing because Jesus wants to honor Stephen, his faithful witness who did not fear death. And in fact, Stephen was stoned for witnessing about Jesus as Messiah right in the process of that happening. And of course, the Apostle Paul saw that. And no doubt that was part of his image of what he was to be. When he said later, I count my life as nothing. I'm glad to give my life. All these hardships I have being beaten by rods, being thrown in jail, being shipwrecked, it's nothing compared to the amazing glory that I'm looking for. Just like Stephen saw. Stephen saw the sovereign of the universe standing to welcome him because he had been faithful unto death. And that is what we are asked to do. Be faithful unto death. Well, I can either rush... Or I can quit. I think I'll quit. And what we'll do next time is we'll start the cosmic disturbances in the sixth seal. When the moon becomes like blood and the stars to heaven falls. A lot of juicy stuff in this one. And then we'll go into the sealing of the 144,000. So we're going to go from breaking seals to sealing. Which is an interesting thing in and of itself. And we're going to see these people sealed. We usually say the term all hell breaks loose, but actually in this case, hell is actually set loose in terms of Hades being set loose and all kinds of horrific things are going to take place on the earth. And so it's going to be very sad to go through this because I mean, we, we love the earth. We want to see it restored. But of course, this is just a process to get to the point of restoring the earth. The, our earth is going to actually be remade. And that's what we're headed toward, which is our great hope. God, thank you for the fact that you are always in control. You're always on your throne. No matter what we see happening in this age, we know you're in control. And if something happens, you've authorized it. And if you've authorized it, it's in our best interest. And Lord, as we see these things happen, I pray that you'll help us respond in the way you're encouraging us to respond in this letter, in this book. And that is to be say, okay, this is my opportunity to be a faithful witness. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of destruction. I'm not afraid of rejection. I'm going to trust you. And I pray that you'll give us a special blessing for taking that stand, as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen.